Schmimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailer's Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailer's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Phil, how do you learn? It is much better when that's done in groups of teachers because it's capitalizing on one of the biggest positive aspects of teachers. Teachers are incredibly good critics. And I mean that very, very positively. And they'll say, well, I see it differently. I see it this way. This is why I say in the book, it's a sin to go in a class and watch a teacher teach. It's okay to say, hey, Mr. Naylor, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers. School leaders, I come back to climate and culture. The climate and culture has to be such that that critique is an improvement notion, not an accountability notion. Our job, our fundamental job in education is to improve. I put to you that a lot of the stuff that you're teaching right this year, the kids won't remember in five years' time at all. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Okay, thank you so much, John, for appearing on the podcast today. Really, really appreciate it. First, gentle kind of introductory question. Could you tell the listeners how you came to revisit the seminal Visible Learning 14 years on? Well, 14 years ago, you're right, I published the first volume and it was kind of a, for me, it was getting it out of my system. Um, My whole career has been in psychometrics, not not in the visible area, but visible learning area. And I thought, let's put a book together so I can say what I need to say and move on. But it didn't, did it? Somehow it caught some imagination for reasons I don't understand. It was my 10th book, Phil, so I don't know what happened to the other nine. But then I had pressure on me to update it because the world didn't stop in 2008. People still published meta-analyses and I still collected them and added them to the database. And I also wanted to spend a lot more time on the story. as opposed to the first book, was it was a lot of data, a lot of evidence building a story. Now I wanted to work on the story. The other thing that's happened is that um, a team around me have set up a lot of work in schools. And we've worked around 10,000 schools over the last 10 years and a lot of evidence from that about how to implement the ideas. And you know, I've learned a lot, a tremendous amount. I also have the luxury of the world's best critics. And I mean that seriously because you know, I'm an academic. You thrive on criticism. Um, and so from that, I've learned a lot. So I, I thought it was time to put together a sequel and um, it comes out March the 20th and I'm very pleased. I, the, the other nice thing 
is I retired about three or four years ago, just before COVID, and then COVID came along. So I had some pretty concentrated time to spend on it, and I enjoyed doing it. Fantastic, right? So just for the listener, the book we're talking about is Visible Learning, the sequel, and it's a synthesis of over 2,100 meta-analyses relating to achievement, and it is a Routledge book. So if we can get into the book, John, if that's okay, uh, and a big question to start with, do teachers still have the greatest in-school impact on the achievement of their students? Absolutely, yes. Um, it all comes down to the variance within a school. Uh, now, some people have misinterpreted that and assume that teachers are bad. It's actually the opposite story. We have, and what actually keeps me going, is we have some stunning teachers throughout our system. In fact, we've never worked in a school yet where there haven't been pockets of superb teachers. The biggest issue is the courage to scale that up. Um, and that, that's what a, a lot of the argument in the book is. How do you reliably identify those excellent teachers, those excellent schools, form a coalition of success around them and scale them up? And, it's, it's, and the book goes to looking at those key ingredients of what it is about those teachers, uh, the way they think more than the way they do. Obviously, the other big influence is the influence of the school leaders. Um, but then you, you can't ignore that kids have an incredible amount of variance amongst them when they walk into a classroom. But teachers can make and do make a dramatic difference. Great stuff. So uh, get into the chapters of the book, if we might do. So could you explain for the listener the five premises of the visible learning model? Well, the, the, the it relates firstly to the purpose, the why about why we do schooling. And I spent some time looking at um, th that notion of why and purpose, looking at the mind frames of the teachers, of the parents, of the kids, of the leaders. And the one we were still working on is the mind frames relating to the culture and climate of the school. So that's the first thing is, how do we go about thinking about what our role is and what we mean by impact? And then I look at the sort of underlying concept of that, which is evaluative thinking. How, we, how teachers, educators make moment by moment decisions, how they notice, how they react, how they improve, how they change. And then one of the big things certainly we noticed as we worked in schools is then having a very clear implementation model. I've learned a lot from Michael Barber in your country about the criticalness of that. And it's really interesting, Phil, when you look around education and say, how many models of implementation have we got? Not many. But if you went to computing or to business or engineering or medicine, they have very defined models. And we've looked at those over the last few years. And we looked at about 80 of them that had a lot of evidence of impact. And we put together the 5D model, which is you know, looking at good diagnosis up front. Um, sometimes that's not as done as well as it should be. Sometimes schools rush into solutions without working out what the problem is. We know, for example, that often people choose professional learning on the basis of what they're doing okay now, not what they necessarily have to improve. So good diagnosis at the, at the school level, teacher level, the kid level. And then looking at the design of the model, the program logic, what's the resources needed, what's the time needed, then looking at the delivery of it, particularly the fidelity. Um, and I, we've got one example I use in the book is flipped learning. Um, there's been 50-odd meta-analysis on flipped learning with dramatically variable results. And it all comes down to the nature of implementation. And in fact, that's a criticism of meta-analysis. This is not enough that's focused on that. So looking at that fidelity, um, particularly looking at adaptations, because they're often the killer 
where teachers adapt an intervention to make it look like they were doing yesterday. And then we look at um, sort of that, that notion of, of what, what I call instructional alignment. Start again, intentional alignment. Um, and this is probably one of the big ideas that has come to me because in the 2008 book, I struggled a lot with the effect size of various teaching methods. It was quite variable all over the place. And it seemed, quite frankly, rather random. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand that seeming randomness. And what it comes down to is that if you look at the cognitive complexity of what you're being taught, um, the facts, the ideas, the content, the surface, what I call the knowing that. And then the next level is kind of the more deeper level where you look at the relationships between ideas, the knowing how, and the last is that transfer, knowing with. And the argument I put is that different te various teaching methods have different effects depending on how it's aligned with the level of complexity. In the same way that different learning strategies and different feedback and different assessments, and they all need to align to have effectiveness. And then you start to see some magic happening. So those are the five big notions. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, John. And just, I mean, I've always got to be careful when I do this podcast that I don't slip into sort of habituation bias and talking about things that impact me in my classroom, in, in my <laughs> school. But um, I was really interested that you've done a lot of writing around the effects of the COVID pandemic. And I think around that 5Ds model, I've certainly seen recently that we've done a lot of good work on evidence, research-based practice and implementation. But because of the supposed lost learning of COVID, we seem to have reverted to previous um, sort of rapid improvement, you know, sort of throw the kitchen sink interventions at um, so certainly that's like key stage four year 11 students for, for their GCSE exams. So have you got any kind of views on the impact that COVID has had on kind of the perceptions of teachers um, and, and learning sort of moving forward. And, and have you seen any of that kind of reaction to sort of, right, well, let's do everything as much as we can, as often as we can, and hope that something sticks? <laughs> well, actually, believe it or not, there are already four meta-analyses on the effects of COVID on kids' learning. And whilst all of them claim to be the first, all of them actually interestingly use quite different articles. There's about 12, 15 million kids in the four studies, and all four of them come up with the same answer, minus 0.15. And the most remarkable thing about that is that that's a very, very small effect. It's about the same size as, as the what kids lose over the summer period. And so the question you need to ask is, why is it, given the incredible disruption, there was death, there was unemployment, there was equity issues, there was resource issues, kids wouldn't come online, there was motivation, or you name it. Despite all that, the effect was so tiny. What did we do so well? And the argument that I make is, it was because of the teachers. And it's really interesting, Phil, when you look around the world, and I've yet to see an example of any system anywhere in the world coming up with a solution that helped you and other teachers teach during COVID. Surely it was the most educator-led revolution in our history. And learning didn't stop. It may have slowed down a bit. Minus 0.5, it's a negative. And certainly I'm not arguing we should go back to COVID times. But then you ask what happens, and I, I don't know about you and I'd be interested in your reaction, Phil, but you couldn't talk for 89% of the time on Zoom. You couldn't ask 150 questions that require less than three word answers. You couldn't focus on a mile wide and an inch deep. You couldn't give 90% plus of your feedback oral and written about the task and the content. 
you switched to triage and you focused on certain kids at certain groups of kids at certain times. You had to be much more clear about what the task is and what success looked like. You had to teach some kids how to work alone and work in groups. And I'd love someone to do an analysis of teachers' comments on Facebook because all the surveys say teachers found it incredibly hard work. I'm not denying that. It was. But also, it's interesting that a lot of teachers are saying, but it was easier. I had a better work-home balance. I was able to spend my time. I got kids to take a video. Sorry, I took a video of Oak Academy. I got the kids to watch it. And whilst they're watching it, I actually spent my time teaching. I didn't spend my time lesson planning. So how did you go about in your class, Phil? Well, I mean, the listener probably won't want to hear this necessarily from me because it was different. I was the member of staff who was the safeguarding lead. So I was in school throughout the period. So I didn't have as much of that impact. I taught the students of, you know, the uh, the key workers and the vulnerable students that were in school at the oh, time. Right. So I had, but, but I mean, I did have quite a few smaller groups that we're delivering to there. But I think what you're talking about there, you know, would be reflective of what kind of things I've spoken about to the teachers that did do that. Um, like I said there, the, the kind of the question I was thinking about there is the reaction to that now. We've almost gone, well, that was one way of doing it. We have to go back to the way that we did it previously and we have to throw every kind of intervention. But again, you know, I'd be interested in listeners reacting to this. This is just my perception. You know, we're talking a lot about rapid improvement and a lot about intervention and a lot about, right, let's make sure that they can plug those gaps. And actually what you're saying there sounds a lot more about a change of practice and a shared language for learning kind of moving forward. And the biggest, and the biggest travesty of COVID is we learned nothing from it. We've rushed back to the old normal. Like, let me give you another example. I remember interviewing this 14-year-old kid and I said to him, well, what happens in your school? And he said, well, every night about six o'clock, the teacher sends us to work for the next day. He said, I get up at 5.30. I've done it by 7.38. He said, I spend the rest of the day gaming with my friends. What do I do at school for five hours? The word efficiency. Kids were a lot more efficient. The trouble with that kid, in a classroom, he'd be punished. He'd be asked to do more. And we all know the reasons why, and it makes sense in a regular classroom. And so it really is interesting the way in which a whole lot of new ideas came up. And I encourage all your listeners to spend a, a, an hour of a staff meeting listing down all the things that worked during COVID, all the things that didn't, and similarly in the regular classroom, and having a really robust discussion about how we can learn from it. Singapore, for example, has decree that once every fortnight the kids have to learn online it can be in the school it doesn't have to be in the home because of parents working and so they've learned from it but hardly any other country has no and it's really interesting john so i mean i spoke to Douglas Mov a few weeks ago because he's written a, a book um about the kind of the return to school if you like and you've written about this in in your book as well about the sense of belonging so how important is you know returning to school that sense of belonging and the class being an inviting place to come back to for students, particularly kind of post-pandemic? Well, all the, all, all the surveys during COVID asking kids, what did they miss at school? It was their friends. Hardly any kid they said they wanted to come back and learn from, to, from Phil or from another teacher. And so, and, and there's nothing wrong with that for their friends. It is the sense of why they come to school. I want more than that, as I'm sure you do too. But that notion of, uh, like in the, in the first book, I talked about teacher-student relationships and I probably didn't write it as well as I should have because some people thought that was the big message and they missed the argument I was trying to make. It's, it's not just the teacher-student relationships, it's how you develop the student-student relationships. I hate to tell you this, some kids can be quite horrible to other kids. But then both of those are for a purpose. It's kind of like building a bank that you can then use it. And the purpose is so that 
it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to say, hey, Mr. Naylor, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. Because that's what learning is. Learning is about what you don't know. You don't come to school to learn that which you do know. It's what you don't know. But by age eight, many kids have learned that errors are embarrassments. They should be opportunities to learn. They learn that if you don't know, look like you do, and you hope you don't get picked on. And so some kids around the age of seven, eight, or nine, school is already not for them. And that's just not good enough. So this notion of making schools inviting, making that sense of belonging, attending to the climate and the culture of the school. And one of the arguments in the book is a bit of a shift from the first one with the impact of school leaders. This is the biggest impact of school leaders on the culture and climate of a school. And when I come into schools and classes, as I do a lot at the moment, and I ask kids, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Virtually every kid in the world says the same thing. Put their hand up, I ask the teacher. Watch them. No, they don't. The only kids who put their hands up are the kids who know or think they know. A lot of kids have learned that if you don't know, it's over. So that's why that sense of belonging, it's, it's a purpose so that it comes to learning. And it's a bit like my worry about COVID and the magnification of social and emotional. Of course, it's always been important. It's always been there. But I want to focus it on social and emotional about learning. And this is the key notion, the sense of belonging, the sense of inviting. Yeah. And I mean, we've seen the impact of that uh, in the UK in terms of, you know, the whole um, kind of attendance figures across the board have dropped quite significantly um, post pandemic. We've had a lot of issues with things like truancy and, and not wanting to attend lessons. And there's been a lot of work going on around kind of sense of belonging and culture. But it's really interesting what you said. And that was one of the big takeaways that I took from from visible learning. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to admit that I'm wrong on a regular basis. And what you find from that is, you know, my students, GCSE students particularly, they really welcome that vulnerability and that sense of saying, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but let's try and find that out. And I've had nothing but positive reaction from that. And it does, it builds that climate. And, you know, they really enjoy feeding back to you to say, right, well, sir, this might be wrong. And here's how I would have done it. And what you're doing is you're demonstrating the process of learning. And you know, it's a whole new chapter in the book on this process of learning. And the other thing I encourage you know, teachers to do is, is to give kids a problem where the answer is given, but it's wrong. And so work out how the kid got it so it was wrong and then fix it. It's a really powerful way to hear, to listen, how kids are thinking. And it's a, you know, it's a good group activity because in the reality, it's probably a lot of kids in the class that got that wrong answer and they're having a clue why. And they sit there and they look at Phil and say, Phil got it right. How did he do it? Now, if I got in your brain, Phil, I know that you probably didn't go A to B to C to D. You went to A to B to C, back to B, and you went all over the place, and you were able to error detect and go back and forth, and you got an answer. That's a mystery to some kids. The irony and the criticism of my work is I call it visible learning, and people say, ah, but learning's not visible. And they missed the point. I want to make it more visible. No, definitely. If you just touched on as well, John, then about the five uh, major attributes of effective leaders, and you've mentioned those obviously in, in the book. So how can those really influence school culture and what are those five main attributes? Well, probably the most powerful of them all is when teachers work together to evaluate their impact. It has one of the highest impacts on kids' learning. Now, we've got a whole set of jargon around it, teacher collective efficacy, clarity, and so on. 
and I just think it's stunning that you know the kids aren't even in the room and they're the biggest beneficiaries. But it does come back to fill to those two notions. What do you mean by impact? Now, for some teachers, it's getting through the curriculum. It's getting the kids past tests. For other teachers, it's deeper mastery and deeper understanding. For most teachers, it's a bit of both, a bit of all those. And I want it to be, when you walk into a classroom tomorrow, I want you to say, my job here is to have an impact on students. And because of that, I need to know. I need to use formative evaluation. I need to use assessments. I need to use noticing. I need to use student voice to find out what the nature of that impact is on their love of learning, on their mastery, on their learning strategies, on their content, on their relationships, on their transfer. I want to know the magnitude of that. And I want to make, and this is where I like the notion, the evaluator of impact. I want to know the value of that. And that's the art of teaching. Now, here's the issue. It is much better when that's done in groups of teachers because it's capitalizing on one of the biggest positive aspects of teachers. Teachers are incredibly good critics. I mean that very, very positively. And they'll say, well, I see it differently. I see it this way. This is why I say in the book, it's a sin to go in a class and watch a teacher teach. Because all you do is you have your lens on, you see it, you pick up tips and tricks and go on. I want to see how the teacher thinks when they teach. And you get that when you have really good collaborative efficacy, professional learning communities that look at evidence, look at change over time and have multiple interpretations. And you know, as you know, Phil, teaching can be a very lonely activity and we build up worldviews about how we teach. We've got to have that critique. Now, school leaders, I come back to climate and culture. The climate and culture has to be such that that critique is an improvement notion, not an accountability notion, then it doesn't work. And it's got to be in the same way I want kids to evaluate their impact and get critique from others. They get it from you. They can get it from others too and to teach them how to interpret it. My goodness, in this day of chat, GPD, and this day of the internet, they, they have to make those judgments every day. We should be deliberately teaching them how to make value judgments. So that's notion of teachers working together. The second one is the nature of their expectations. And as my colleague, Christine Ruby Davies has shown that teachers who have high expectations tend to have it for all the students and are enormously successful. And sadly, teachers who have low expectations tend to have it for all the students and sadly are not successful. And the nature of the classrooms are different. And so I say to school leaders, do you know the expectations of the teachers? Do you know what they expect their kids to achieve during the year? If you don't, I kind of don't care what program you put in place. It's going to be filtered through that. Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers. One of the, like I said, the COVID impacts has been this ramped up accountability towards teachers because students aren't making enough progress. And what I was really interested in what you said that and in the book that you talked about, you know, critique, teachers working together and not accountability. But how do you then as a, a school leader work within a system that says, right, I need to see rapid improvement of teachers and their formative and summative assessments are indicative of underperformance. How do you go and improve the quality of teaching? And is, is that difficult to do in a climate where it's about accountability, not about oh, teaching? Absolutely. Like you put kids in the climate of accountability and, and, and watch that competitive streak come out and some are not on others. You see kids turning off straight away. It's no different. It's, we, we're not, it's the nature of us as, as um not only human beings, but as educators, our, our job, our fundamental job in education is to improve. 
Um, and like one of the, the fascinations, switching to another topic for a moment, when you look at feedback, kids want feedback that helps them improve. So do we. And so that's why that climate has to be a safe climate. And like we, we know from the last 20, 30 years of accountability, if the school's really, 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 really not doing well, accountability measures can boost them up. Sometimes it points out they have a problem that they've denied. But once they're up to about an average effect, there's no evidence at all that I can see that accountability models then make any improvement. Um, but I know it's easy for outsiders, for government to say more accountability, and I'm not opposed to accountability models. Um, as I've argued for many times and been imp implemented in my own work and in the, the political spaces I work in, is I want you, Phil, the school leader, to tell me your interpretations of how you're improving in your school and if you're like any school I've ever worked in, where are your problems? What are your problem kids? We all have them. I want to know that you know about them. I want to know you've got a strategy in place. Now, as the outsider, I probably will want to check on that um, to get my own view. I probably want to make sure that you've triangulated, got cross-validation. I want to hear your teachers talking a common language. And that's what I want to hear in accountability. And if you tell me everything's rosy, you're in trouble because that's not the nature of learning. Learning's messy. Learning's hard work. Learning will always continue. So in that sense, I do have a, a strong view about accountability, but particularly you in England, particularly with Ofsted, um, this tendency to beat up teachers because every kid's not Einstein or Madame Curie is just madness. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, I thought it had improved sort of pre-pandemic but i've seen because of you know falling attendance targets falling um potential achievement and all this is then now naturally passing down the line of accountability into particularly schools in charging circumstances um to kind of work with the teachers to make sure that right if those assessments aren't where they where they should be right you need to do this you need to do this and you need to do this and it isn't necessarily um looking at the best things for that student in that school correct yes Okay, so I'm okay for time then, John. We've got a couple more questions. Is that all right? Go for it. Right, so curriculum, you've talked about, is a hotly contested topic, particularly here in the UK. Um, do you feel, and obviously from what your research has shown, that too much time and energy are invested in curriculum planning and not enough in aligning those teaching methods to the curriculum objectives? Well, firstly, I just find it stunning. And you know, I actually can't find the number here in Australia, but it's probably 30 or 40 times over the last 20 years We've set up committees to fix the curriculum and make it smaller, and they've ended up adding more. We tweak and our way towards utopia with curriculum, and it just doesn't fascinate me. Like the Australian curriculum is, if you printed it out, is around three and a half thousand pages long. New Zealand curriculum for every subject, for every age group, is only 69 pages. What a contrast. And then, then you look at the next part is that most curricula, and it's your country too, it's not implemented. And I point out in the book, I just think it's fascinating that every night, virtually every teacher in the world goes home and prepares a lesson. There's no research on that. There's no research on that impact of lessons. There's no guidance for teachers. Like we, we put up things and say to teachers, this is a good set of lesson plans. Well, someone thought it was, and it probably was. And the criteria of success is, did the kids like it? Did we get through it in time? Was it enjoyable? Did it help relate to the uh, objectives we're trying to do? Where's the evidence of that? And so one of the things I'm trying to do here in Australia is to convince the powers that be that we need to get smarter and help teachers. Now, 
I don't want a set of scripts that teachers have to follow. That's not what I'm talking about. But why can't we have a database of lessons where it's been aligned with curriculum? It's got an index about how rigorous and usable it is. It's got an index index of how uh, the impact on kids and what kinds of kids. So that teachers can use that to start their lessons. And so that what I'm arguing here, Phil, is that curriculum is fascinating. You can tweak it as much as you like, but it's hardly ever implemented. Not implemented with fidelity. It's too random. We spend far too much responsibility on teachers to get it right. And then, as I say, what we then do is we wring our hands, we set up another committee, and we improve it. Like I, I, I've been asked many times to be on curriculum committees, and I say, I'll only be honoured if you agree that we can take half the stuff out. So any curriculum committee I've ever been on was the Welsh one, um, back at around about, it was 2011, 12. And I talked to the minister, and he said, you're absolutely right. It's far too much in here. So I was on it for a short time, and then he left. And the next person said, what do you mean get rid of stuff? In this day and age, we have to put more in. So they shoved more in. I withdrew. They shoved more in. And you know, what does what it impact? I bet they're going to do another review or a, a, another stock take of it very soon because it's it's seductive. It's easy. Everyone loves to tweak it. You, could, you can hear me going here, Phil. I'm not a fan of tweaking curricula. What do we do in COVID? We cut back breadth and we went deep. What do you do when you ask? Adults, what do they remember about their school days? They remember the things they went deep in. I put to you that a lot of the stuff that you're teaching right this year, the kids won't remember in five years' time at all. Why do we do it? Nailers, natter, just talking to teachers. No, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and it's also being used as, like I mentioned, mentioned before, that you, know, you talked about belonging earlier on. It's almost... Um, Kind of saying, trying to say that if your curriculum isn't fit for purpose and it's not meeting the needs of all the students, then yeah. it's not worth attending those lessons. And that's the reaction to it is the attendance issues or the truancy issues because the oh, curriculum's sure. not right. And some wise kids. Like what, what, what we did in New Zealand in around 2004 is we abolished, overnight, we abolished the equivalent of A-levels, O-levels and the system they had in place. And it did not go down well. Uh, many schools were very angry because they had hierarchies of who taught those courses. Now, I have to confess, the implementation of the new model was a mess. It did not go well. But what they did, and it finally got got its act together for various reasons, it says, we're going to attest what kids can do and the level of quality they can do it. And so we said, if you could do, um, for instance, a, a business course to run a swimming pool, which my son did, and you can get excellent on that, that excellence is equivalent to getting excellent in chemistry. Now, that did not go down with the chemistry teachers. But wait a moment. For that kid, he wanted to be excellent in business. In fact, he went on and ran his own business in water polo for about uh, seven or eight years after that. What's wrong with the guy doing chemistry? Nothing at all. But the current hierarchy is not serving the kids. It's serving the selection process. It's serving the curricula. It narrows it, puts the test in place. So I look at England and say, whilst you have a system that's fundamentally built for selection, you're going to have a lot of kids who don't belong, who don't want to be there. You'll have a lot of teachers and schools that find ways to get rid of those kids. We'll have your attendance problem. What's wrong with a kid who wants to be a panel beater, who wants to be a painter and paper, who wants to be a water polo coach, why can't they be excellent? Now, the mistake New Zealand made in the early days is they didn't have the excellence component. They just counted the number of courses. Those kids, all kids want challenge. All kids want to be 
challenge towards excellence. And that one of the things that did is that we had 80% of kids who finished high school in New Zealand before the revolution, after the new system came in, it went up to 92%. That's a dramatic change. And you know that 12% would not have come back if we had improved the maths and the English and the history curriculum at all. And so I I worry about your system. Australia is similar to yours. Uh, We still have a, a selection process that's there. And in New Zealand, when it happened, the universities, they, they solved the problem by how to select almost instantly. It was not difficult. Now, they're upset in the early days because they like schools doing the selection for them. But we said, no, that's not our job. Our job is to teach kids and make them as good as they can in the areas that they wanted to be good in and increase the complexity and the challenge of what we do and recognize that. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, John. Right, one last question, if I might do. So could you explain the skill, the will, and the thrill of learning strategies? Yeah, in our science and learning work, we decided that we would do a meta synthesis of the learning strategies. And we identified about 400 of them. And away we went, we found some meta analysis, we did lots of our own. And the naive thing we wanted to look at is could we come up with the top 10 or 12 strategies? And it turned out that was not possible for a very simple reason they differed they differed in two ways. One, in terms of the level of complexity, that notion of surface and deep and transfer. The same strategy for surface differed at deep and vice versa. And it also differed about when you first expose a student to something and then you consolidate it. Now, when you first expose a student to, to content and material, memorization has an effect size of 0.03. When you go on to consolidate information, overlearn it, memorization has a factor of 0.73. So we had to take that into account. We also had to take into account what the kids brought to the classroom and what we want them to leave the classroom with. And this is where we came out with this notion of the skill, will, and thrill. What skills does a kid bring to the classroom? Their IQ, their prior achievement, their knowledge from their home, from their culture. And then the wills was about their dispositions. And we've got a whole lot of debate about growth mindset, responsibility, grit, you name it. And then the third part is their motivation. What's the thrill of learning for them, is it? Because they have to be there. They do want to master. They, they do want to pass tests. They do want to look good in front of their friends. And our argument was that they walk into the classroom with those. And as teachers, we need to know their skill, their will, and their thrill. And we need to have clear ideas about the nature of that skill, will, and thrill we want to develop. Now, it turns out, no surprise, under the skill, prior achievement was the most powerful. And so all those you know, teachers who argue we need to come up with authentic real-world activities that help kids in their future miss the point. It's the opposite. You have to find work for them that relates to what they already know and build on that. Under the will, it's self-efficacy, confidence. And a lot of kids don't have a lot of confidence to take on challenges. Like the best example I can come up with there, fellas, gifted kids. Um, now, why is it most gifted kids don't go on to be gifted adults? At a certain age, usually around 14, 15, and 16, they're a bit terrified to take on challenges of new areas because they haven't worked out how to fail. They can't cope with fail. And so it's not a pretty scene. And our argument in the book is we have to teach kids to have confidence. We need safety nets. We need to build that. And then under the thrill, it turns out that strategic motivation is the most important. Kids who know when you value content or when you value depth are the most successful. 
And our argument is, tell them. And this is one of the big themes throughout the in intentional alignment. It's two, Phil, have two success criteria, one about surface, one about deep. Have two assessment tasks, have two assignment tasks. Make it very clear to the students that you value both. It's not either or. I want you to know things. I want you to have certain skills. And I want you to relate them, interpret them, and use them. And this is when I was saying earlier, when you look at all the teaching methods, with very few exceptions, they're reasonably random. So no wonder kids get confused. And then when you ask kids from age eight upwards, you know, who's a good learner? It's a kid who knows lots. And so they think their job is to be on Jeopardy, to be on the quiz programs. That's the kind of notion. Um, and, and there's a conspiracy. Kids above average want teachers to talk more about the facts because that's the game they're good at. They're winners at it. But it's not serving us very well. And so that's why we looked at the skill, will, and the thrill to try and separate out that sort of uh, cognitive achievement, those kind of social and emotional aspects, and, and the thrill and motivation. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Right. Okay. We're always going to leave the listener wanting more. So John Hattie, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Just to signpost listeners again. So it's Visible Learning, the sequel, a synthesis of over 2,100 meta-analyses relating to achievement. And it's a Routledge book. John, do you mind just finishing off by telling us where it's available? Are you coming over to the UK as well, aren't you? Tell us a little bit about that and signpost listeners to your website, etc. if you don't mind. Thank you. Well, yes, it's... Um... It's available for pre-publication on the Routledge website at the moment. It comes out on March the 20th. And yes, I come to um, your country next week and I have about five or six different um, obligations that there I'm speaking um, around the country and ending up at the World Education Summit. Fantastic. Right, it's been a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time, John. Really, really appreciate it. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller's Natter, just talking to teachers.